0: All right, so I'll open with prayer, and, uh, and then we'll get into our lesson. Heavenly Father, you created the world and all that is in it. You made mankind your priests on this earth, and it is our prayer that we will be faithful and humble priests. As your word tell, tells us, you will one day cut off all flattering lips and the tongues of those who boast in anything but you. So we pray that you will make us humble priests as we study your word today, your word that is sharper than a double-edged sword. We're grateful that your word mercifully divides bone and marrow and prepares us for the altar fire of your spirit. Your spirit that was given to us in baptism and continually transforms us into new creations and living sacrifices. Please make us just kings and queens, make us bold prophets on the earth and all of this for the sake of your son, our savior, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to continue our pre-Leviticus study uh, floating around in various places in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, of course, we'll mention Leviticus here and there, and <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to use a microscope today compared with previous weeks in that um, we're going to narrow down and talk about basically one theme or concept the entire time i had uh, i was of a mind to talk about two sort of themes and concepts uh, divine rest being one of them and then adam's priestly nature and thus our priestly natures Uh, but i I just it it became too long (laughs) what i had typed up was you know, well over 3000 words over 10 pages. It was, it was getting to be crazy. So, so I'm just having to chop some things up. Um, But that being said uh, today, we're going to talk about divine rest. And um, you've got, uh, hopefully have you, do you have a handout? If you don't have one and need one, raise your hand and I've got some. Okay. Let's see. I have two handouts left. So if you have a family member you can share with, then uh, I would. Uh, I think they, the Kavanaugh's need one. And um, can you share with your sisters here, Joe? Okay. And thank you. Thanks, Amy. Um, I did 20 this week, um, and I guess that wasn't enough. So next next week, we'll. I'll maybe I'll do more. Um, okay. So, your, but your handout should have uh, some relevant information on it. Uh, on the first page not the cover page but you'll see sort of the basic argument that i'm going to be trying to make today Uh, some people don't love when theology is done this way in the sort of the 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 way of analytic philosophy but that's sort of my that was my graduate school training and when i can i like to try to do that and this is you know this is very basic Uh, this is one of the first things you learn in elementary logic the argument you have in front of you it's called uh, it's uh, form as modus ponens. If the abstract structure of it is if P then Q, P therefore Q. It, it just, we'll talk about that in a moment, but um, that's why it's laid out that way. If it looks funny, don't let that throw you off. That's just how I decided to to structure the talk. It's also, if you're a young person and you're wanting to learn how to be a good writer and write a solid English 101 paper, learning how to do lay your argument out and a uh, uh, standard form like I have here is, is a good lesson. I used to teach my uh, logic students that to help them with their writing. But anyway, uh, so we're going to talk about divine rest and you'll, your handout will be relevant here. So last week we focused on the idea that the cosmos, the world as a whole was created by God as a, a temple within which he would live and take rest with his human creatures. And in our time together this week, I'd like to accomplish one major task, and that is I'd like to show you that when God Sabbaths, when he rests, he does so in a temple. So if in Genesis 2-2, God rests in creation, he rests in the world, um, the world that he took six days to speak into existence, well, then it just follows that the world is Yahweh's temple. So here's one way we can formulate that argument, our first premise if Yahweh rests in some place X, X is just a variable, it's an abstraction, then X is his temple, premise two, Yahweh rested in the world, part of the support, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tr- provide supports for each of these premises, and if those premises are true or probably true, then it's just going to happen, it just follows by necessity that our conclusion, therefore, the world is Yahweh's temple, that's also true or probably true, depending on how we're wanting to view these premises. Um, So one of the things I'm really hoping though that we'll take away from this and the previous lessons is that the categories, and this is very important, the categories of temple, priest, sacrifice, and so on, those are all rooted in some way in creation itself. So that when we see those realities, those concepts and practices embodied and picked up in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the rest of the Pentateuch, and really, indeed, throughout the rest of the Bible, when we see those things mentioned, they're not foreign entities. They're actually constitutive parts of the world of human and human identity. And it's vitally, vitally important that we recognize these things, temple, priest, sacrifice, and so on, as constitutive of, of reality, because that's how the biblical writers thought about the world. And if we're going to understand God's written word in all of its depth and beauty... We're going to have to see the world the way that they did. And uh, when we can see the world as the Bible portrays it, uh, we can begin to develop, I think, a truly Christian metaphysic. We can begin to, as uh, Cornelius Van Til, I'm sure many of you have heard of him before, but we can do what he so often uh, urged us to do, and that is think God's thoughts after him. If you're a classical theist, you probably don't like Van Til. I think that's a mistake. But uh, anyway, that's just insider baseball there. But, um, but w- the point is that we begin to think God's thoughts after him. And on the biblical model, there is no natural world that stands separated from the so-called supernatural world. Instead, all of reality, I mean, literally everything, literally everything belongs to God and comes to us pre-interpreted. By him. He's called this world his temple and human beings his priests. And as we study these early chapters in the Bible and we speak about things in the way that we have been, in terms of temples and priests and kings and sacrifice and so on, we're not engaging in some cute or merely even intellectually interesting or poetic way of reading the Bible in reality. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in being cute or uh, in, in even in one sense, being super intellectual. Instead, what I'm interested in doing, and I think what we're doing when we talk about the Bible and the world and the way that God's made it, is that we're carving reality at its joints. We're simply repeating what God has said about the fundamental and distinctive categories of reality. And as we do that, we're refusing to let the world tell us, what God's world is and what his human creatures are. This ties in, I think, nicely with some of what Nick was talking about in the sermon today in terms of the yoga class and, and you know, and all of this. Um, we're not letting the world, whether it be the world of modernism, postmodernism, Eastern religionism, any other kind of ism, we're not letting those things tell us what God's world is. Scripture is telling us what God's world is and who we are if you want to fight back against um, the sort of seems like the prevailing view of gender ideology in our country um, we can change our language we think in 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 language let's change the way we talk uh, let's call people uh, priests we can i'm not saying run around the streets calling everybody a priest but these ideas should be coming out in our speech and then the the concepts we use to talk about the world, um, it, it will it will change everything. I think if we do that, uh, if we think God's thoughts after Him, we can. I could elaborate a lot on that, but I won't. But um, so let's do this. Let's go ahead and get started. Let's t- uh, turn to uh, the first premise of our little argument there on your first page, and let's start trying to see if we can find reasons that uh, reasons in support of that first premise, that uh, if Yahweh rests in some place, then that place is a temple. So the first reason, the first major reason, I'm going to provide you two major reasons today. The first reason is going to be from the ancient Near Eastern context in which the Bible was written. And what I mean by that is just that ancient Near Eastern peoples, that's what they thought. Okay. And the Israelites being among these people, They shared in various ways the worldview of their neighbors, not in every way, but this is the context in which God chose to reveal himself to people. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see ancient Near Eastern themes and uh, concepts uh, pop up in our Bible. So the first support for our uh, premise one is going to come from the ancient Near Eastern background of the Bible. And the second support is going to this is really sort of where the rubber meets the road and what we really care about. The second support of our first premise is going to come from the Bible itself. Okay, I'm going to try to argue that this is the prevailing theme in the Bible, that when God rests in some place, that place is a temple. He seeks out his his rest in a temple. Okay, so to our first support for the ancient Near Eastern context, God chose to reveal and covenant himself to people living in the ancient Near East. So it shouldn't be shocking when we find the biblical authors talking about and thinking like people um, talking like and thinking like people in their time and culture. And as I noted last week, there are a number of parallels or points of contact between the worldview of the ancient Israelites and the other people groups in the ancient Near East. And this is true. This is true for how they understood creation as a cosmic temple, which we talked a lot about last week. And it's also true for what they thought about uh, divine, the concept of divine rest. John Walton, an Old Testament scholar, he, uh, this is what he says about the concept of divine rest in the ancient Near East. And this is from his book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament, quoting him. And this is also on a handout of yours, I believe, or on your handout, excuse me, the second page of your handout. The concept of divine rest can in turn be elucidated by ancient Near Eastern literature, which demonstrates that a deity's rest is achieved in a temple generally as a result of order having been established. The rest, while it represents a disengagement from the process of establishing order, is more importantly, an expression of engagement as the deity takes his place at the helm to maintain an ordered, secure, and stable cosmos." End quote. Um, what's important for our purposes in, in what Walton has to say is that um, Again, people in ancient Near East thought that they just thought of deities resting in temples. And one thing I do want to point out is that notice how he says that the deity takes his place at the helm. Um, This is another way of saying that the deity uh, takes his place not just in a temple, but in a palace. He takes his place as the ruler of, in the ancient Near East, they would think of a specific region or country. They didn't have a concept, really, for a ruler that ruled over everything. They had a sort of a pantheon of gods uh, or a divine council, you might say, something like that. Um, Okay, so. that's the ancient Near Eastern background. I think when we consider that, that provides some support for our first premise. But let's get into Psalm 132, the Bible itself, and let's look at some additional reasons to think that our first premise is true. So Psalm 132 should be on the next page of your handout, in verses 1 through 9 and then verses 13 through 16. Um, I'm just going to read it unless someone would like to read it for us maybe I ought to read it for the recording, just, just in case. Let me read that. Uh, and I believe I, I generally use the ESV, and I think that's where I took this from. Um, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. A dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it; we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your uh, saints shout for joy. Going down to verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has delivered it. uh, I'm sorry. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. Okay. So this psalm begins by noting that David swore to Yahweh that he would not rest himself until he built a house for God. If you go read 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, this idea comes out pretty clearly. David really wanted to build a house for God, but but he didn't um, because God didn't bless him with that uh, honor because he uh, rebelled against God at a time, and so uh, he gave that to his son Solomon to do. But David wanted to. And he he says as much uh, here in in our psalm, verse 4, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber uh, to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Verse 5. Repeated throughout the psalm is the fact that uh, that, that the temple is God's dwelling place. David's talking about the temple here. So look at verses 5, 7, and 13. A place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. His dwelling place in verse seven, worship at his footstool. His his dwelling place is a place of worship. It's also the place where his footstool is. There is a there is a political nature to God's rule. This is why I'm I'm becoming more and more convinced. Um, I, you know, it's been popular to say that the gospel is not political. I just think that these days I just think that's wrong. I could be persuaded. I'm always willing to be persuaded otherwise. But the gospel is political. Um, because God's reign is political. Um, This is God's world, Uh, no matter um, what uh, um, any of our leaders have to say about that. So um, what's important here, too, is that in verses 8 and 14, we see that the temple is, uh, is God's own resting place. As our own homes are places of rest for us, Yahweh's temple is the place where he rests. And this is verses 7 and 8. Let's go into his dwelling place. Let's worship at his footstool. Arise, Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. What do you think the ark mentioned there is probably a reference to? If You had to guess. Yeah, I think so. In addition to the temple being God's dwelling place and his resting place, it's a place of strength, political power, might. Um, I think we we should also see that in in this psalm, what we've seen of it so far, that Yahweh's temple is is a palace. In fact, um, the Hebrew word hekal that's often translated temple is uh, also in a number of places in the Old Testament translated as palace. So when we read this psalm, we uh, we should walk away with the idea that when Yahweh rests, He's um, he's doing so in his palace and on his throne. That's just where he rests. Yahweh doesn't have a bed that he rests on. You don't really get that picture in the Bible. But I mean, it's replete through the Psalms. This is just it's just you'll find it in Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. It's not just in Psalm 132, but we're just looking at this sort of as a test case. But this idea that when when God rests, he rests on his throne. Okay, but his throne is in a specific place. Thrones don't just sit out in the middle of the desert someplace, right? Thrones sit in a house. But of course, a house that has a throne in it is what? It's a palace, right? Um, now, here's something else, though. So you've got a house that's got a throne in it, so it's, we're talking about a palace. but um, the palace is a place where people go to worship, according to this psalm, because they're worshiping at the footstool. So what kind of building are we talking about? It's not just a palace. Uh, it's a temple palace, right? That's what all these images, and we've taken all of these images and put them together, it builds up this concept of a temple palace as being the place the place where God rests. Does it make sense so far? Yeah. And uh, you may not be convinced by this, that's fine, but I'll, I'll do my best. That's all I can do. All right. Now, if there's any question about whether Yahweh's dwelling place, resting place, and the place from which he rules the world is a temple, the psalmist, I think, settles that debate in verses 7 and verse 9. While speaking of his dwelling place uh, and his resting place and so on, he says, let's worship at his footstool. And then in verse 9, may your priests be clothed with righteousness and may your godly ones sing for joy. Because Yahweh's dwelling place is, and resting place is a place of worship that's occupied by priests. At least it seems so in this psalm. Well, I think we need to conclude that um, when Yahweh rests, he rests in a temple. He rests in a place of worship. So it makes sense to me. Um, I look, at, and there's actually there are tons of books and articles about this too. It's not just I'm not just pulling this out of my hat after reading Psalm 132. There's a lot to say in support of this, but. Um, But I think Psalm 132 really lays this out. It's a good summary of sort of the overall biblical teaching on divine rest. So um, because my ultimate purpose is to provide another argument in favor of the idea that creation is a temple, I now have to show you that Yahweh rested in creation. We've got to move on to premise two. I think I've provided some reasons in support of premise one. So now we need to move to premise two of the argument on your first page there. Um, And I know, like, so, um, sort of how I'm wired, like, the the more arguments you can have in favor of something, at least thinking, you know, as a philosopher than, you know, um, previous life, like, uh, the more arguments you can have in favor of something, the better, right? I mean, let's say you're arguing for, um, uh, let's, you're the the idea that we are, fundamentally, we're disembodied souls, all right, let's just say that's what you're trying to argue, okay? You might do that um, by uh, adopting Descartes' cogito method, right? You try to doubt everything, but what can't you doubt while that you're a thinking thing, right? So you, maybe you, you adopt that method or maybe you, you so that's one argument. You might uh, argue from ex- phenomenal experience or your qualia or whatever, like, you know, all these things that philosophers talk about. Maybe you try to establish your, your conclusion that way. Or maybe um, you're, you try to argue that we're disembodied souls be, uh, from uh, near-death experiences. Maybe you do that, right? And you take all these near-death experiences. People are like, well, I, did, I, was, I saw my body laying on the table. I was floating away, right? Maybe, maybe that's one way you try to take that testimony. So maybe in some sense, that's an argument from experience. I don't know. Um, but those would be different ways to argue to the same conclusion. And I think I provided last week uh, various reasons. So one way of arguing to the conclusion that creation is a cosmic temple and that we're priests, as Adam was, what I'm doing this week is providing another argument, a different way to get to that conclusion. I'm arguing, you might call this an argument from divine rest. The idea is just when we reflect on the concept of a divine rest as it's portrayed in scripture, um, it just entails um, this idea that creation is a cosmic temple. Okay. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, so we've got to move on, though, um, to premise two. And we need to say something in defense of it because you might have thought something like this. Well, I mean, for all I know, after God created the world, he took to heaven to have his rest, right? I, maybe he didn't rest in creation. I mean, does the biblical text say that? It just says that he rested, right? I don't remember it saying where he rested exactly, explicitly. Um, but... I don't think that's the right way to view it. I think we should see God as resting in creation. And I'm going to try to provide uh, two arguments in favor of that premise. Um, the first is going to be based on this biblical theological idea. The, this is the idea that runs throughout all of the canon of scripture that uh, when God rested, he always intended from, from the garden, from the time of the garden on, he's always intended to rest with his people. That's going to be the first Support I, I try to provide in support of premise two. The second, we'll look at the second support will come from a, just a brief reflection on the architecture uh, of uh, the the temple and tabernacle, and in particular the movement that the ark of the covenant sometimes makes. Okay, that will be the second support uh, for our second premise. Okay, all right, okay, all right, uh, so our first reason our first uh, argument in favor of premise two throughout the bible we can see that uh, god's sabbath rest wasn't intended for him alone he's always wanted to rest with his people and this is really i I love this i like typology i just want to consider this for a moment Um, as god intended to take up his dwelling place in the land among his people in the promised land just think about the book of deuteronomy he's always pointing this out I'll, I'll repeat what i just said here in a minute actually but he's taking he, where has he taken up residence now where has god taken up residence now he always wanted to take up residence in the land with his people where has he taken up residence now it's associated it's something associated with dirt think of acts chapter 2 where does God live now? Joe. Yeah, in us. In us. God's spirit, um, which is associated with fire, which brings us back to the book of Leviticus, the, the altar fire that eats um, the sacrifices. This is why fire, I think, um, descended onto the heads of the apostles. See, um, God hasn't, he hasn't foregone, he hasn't he's moved away from his desire to dwell in the land it's just that you and I, being people of the dirt, dirt people, we are those pieces of land. We're holy ground. I mean it. I know it sounds Looney Tunes. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I look like a crazy man, but I mean it. I really mean that. I think that's, I think we're supposed to see that image in Scripture. We're holy ground. Um, this, we could say a lot more about that in its relation to baptism. I won't do that. But... Um, But anyway, so I just wanted to pause on that for a second. But the point is, God's always wanted to bring his people into his rest. Sabbath rest is a gracious gift from God, in part because um, it's his provision of us living under his kingly rule. He's the just judge of all the earth, and he'll only do that which is right. The psalmist tells us that, right? I mean, think about it. What kind of peace can we have knowing that we live under the rule of a perfectly just king. One day that rule will be fully realized on this earth. And the church plays a big role in that and bringing about that rule. This is why we should change our language and talk as the Bible talks. Every society has its language and its concepts and categories and the Bible gives us ours. So, and I'll say more about this, and I'll come back to this in more detail in a later lesson once we get to those latter chapters of of Leviticus. But the purpose of Sabbath rest for the people of God, um, part of its purpose is for us to give it away. Okay, I mean, you see Jesus doing this in the Old Testament when he's accused, or in the New Testament when he's accused of working on the Sabbath. What he's doing is he's giving the Sabbath away to people, he's giving away rest. And that's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. (laughs) as his body. So the idea that God's always desired to rest with his people can be found throughout the Old Testament. And I think in particular, we can see this really in a really interesting way um, in the book of Exodus, um, as God delivers his people from bondage in Egypt. The Israelites were to do with God what he's always wanted to do with his people, even in the garden, have a feast with them. Exodus 5.1. Let's see here. I've got Exodus 5, one through 9. <clears throat> Uh, with relevant portions underlined on your handout. Um, that would have meant that they take a break from their work. How, and the, the text of Exodus tells us that. Let me read this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron w- uh, went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is, who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. So you can't reduce the number of bricks they made. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cried, let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the man on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words, End quote. Okay. Pharaoh throughout the Bible is an anti-creational figure. We have to remember rest, God's Sabbath rest is a part of creation. And um, Pharaoh hates the creation blessings. And we could see this in part because he hated the creation blessing. I mean, if you think back, so um, Joseph's uh, family ends up in Egypt, and how does Exodus open? It opens by telling us that they're flourishing. There are tons of Israelites. They're all over the place, right? And um, there were so many of them that the, the Egyptians, particularly Pharaoh, were scared of them, okay? And so what does he do? So they're living... They're living out this creation blessing of being fruitful and multiplying. So what does Pharaoh, this anti-creational, this anti-Christ type figure in the Old Testament, so to speak, anti-God figure in the Old Testament, what does he do? He decides to kill their babies, right? He hates that blessing and tries to undermine it. And uh, I want to suggest here in Exodus 5, we get a clear picture about how he hates another creation reality, rest. He doesn't want the people to rest, to have a feast with God. He wants to interrupt that. He wants to keep them burdened and working. But again, God wanted to rest with his people. Resting involved feasting, too. Now, God resting with his people is is an important theme in the book of Deuteronomy. uh, As God repeatedly... uh, So we're moving beyond Exodus now as God repeatedly tells Israel that he is bringing them to the promised land so that he can give them rest from all of their enemies. I I didn't put these citations in your packet, but Deuteronomy 3.20, Deuteronomy 12, and Deuteronomy 25. Interestingly, the promised land is described in various places in Edenic terms. It's described like this garden, this place of abundance and security. And this Edenic description of the promised land makes sense, If God is doing what we talked about, the book of Leviticus is showing us, he's reversing the fall so that his original purpose of resting with his people in the land will be realized. The New Testament picks up on all of this. Quoting Psalm 95, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Israel was unable to enter God's rest because of their disobedience. That's Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. So if it's true that God's intention has always been to rest with his people, then it seems plausible that in Genesis 2-2, when he rested, he intended to do so with the only human creature around, Adam. As far as we know, there was no one else. And so this means, I think, um, that God intended to rest on earth because that's where Adam was. Adam wasn't in heaven. I don't think God retreated to heaven to take a rest. He didn't need to. Because in a very important sense, he brought heaven to earth. He had made a temple, a a sanctuary in which he could dwell with his very first priest, Adam. He's in the right kind of place to rest. So that's a defense of our that's the first defense of our second premise. And now I want to try to um, provide a second defense of our second premise, and we do have enough time, so that's good. Uh, another way that we can see God's intention of resting and ruling on earth on earth with his people is by reflecting on the architecture of the tabernacle and the movement of the Ark of the Covenant. When we read throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms, that Yahweh sits enthroned above the earth. I mean, that idea is all over the place. He sits enthroned above the earth, okay? So that might give you pause. You might say, oh, well, that acts as a counterexample to your second premise that, that it, it, he's, he's on his throne above the earth you're claiming he's rested on the earth like there's something wrong with this but just bear with me for just a moment i'll try to bring heaven and earth together so it's kind of a joke anyway <laughs> anyway uh, uh, it's good to be a nerd all right uh all right so um But I think what the structure of the tabernacle teaches us is that Yahweh's throne spans heaven and earth. See, I just brought heaven and earth together for you. The tabernacle teaches us that heaven and earth come together. And I think that's what we were seeing going on on in the the Garden of Eden. This is why you've got uh, uh, some fallen angelic figure running around talking to people. Okay. Um, Eve apparently didn't think it was that weird that this snake or at least serpentine looking angelic figure uh started talking to her we don't get any indication of that um because i think heaven and earth were maybe not as separated as they seem to be now but some of that's just conjecture Um, but uh the holy of holies and the ark that's in it um and remember we had mention of the ark in psalm 132 that was a part of yahweh's throne the place where he rested. And there's an Old Testament scholar, G.K. Beale. He has some interesting comments on this. Let me read to you what he has to say. The Holy of Holies, as I'm quoting him, the Holy of Holies is part of God's, and this is also on your uh, handout, is part of God's heavenly throne room. Yahweh sits enthroned above the cherubim on the Ark of God. Since the Ark was the footstool of God's heavenly throne, the Holy of Holies was the bottom part to where the heavenly throne room extended. Since the ark represented the heavenly presence of God, its movement outside the holy of holies signaled the movement of God Himself breaking into the earthly realm to scatter His enemies. And he cites Numbers 10:35, um, and we'll look at that. And so, what's interesting about the ark going out before the people is that they're uh, as they're leaving. Let's tell you what. Let's look at Numbers 10:35, um, 33 through 36, really. So they set out from the Mount, that's Mount Mount Sinai, from the Mount of the Lord, three days journey and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, excuse me, went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. Wow. Look at that. God goes out before his people, his, his presence, his part of his throne goes out before his people to do what? To seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the the ten thousand thousands of Israel. what's interesting about the ark going out before the people as they're leaving Mount Sinai here in Numbers 10 is that Moses describes that event as God going before his people to seek out a place of rest and um, as God's throne the ark or part of his throne comes to rest he prays that God will return to it so where does that ark eventually come to rest well it comes to rest in the tabernacle again And any time they move, the ark moves and the tabernacle moves with it. The point is that God is always coming back to rest with his people. So this, I think, provides another reason to think that our second premise is true, that um, God rested on the earth because he's resting with his people. That's been his intention uh, from day one, so to speak. Um, And uh, the movement of the Ark of the Covenant, as it goes out, seeking a place of rest to which his people will go, and he stays there with them that helps us see that uh, that truth does that make sense okay. all right so i'm going to wrap up this is good a uh, few minutes early um, so what we've done this week is we've established uh, i think the truth of our conclusion our argument feel free to argue with me about it we have a few minutes for you know q a um, be happy to hear what you think um Next week, so in, 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 in doing that, I think, so if God rests, remember, then creation, the conclusion of that argument is just that creation is a cosmic temple. That reality hasn't changed. Um, and, uh, in fact, we have um, a lot of the church is described as a temple because the people of God uh, um, are indwelt by the Spirit and so on, right? Um, the the earth is, is God's temple, and it's um, being rebuilt day by day. Um, through the power of the spirit and the work of Christ's body on this earth His hands and feet. And that's us. He's the head. We're the body, the heads, and the head, the hands and the feet. We do the work of building the kingdom. Um, so I think we've established that. And so next week, what I want to do is I want to, um, I want to look at some of the geographical features of the cosmic temple. In particular, I want to focus on this idea that it's a mountain that, that, as the Moses the writer of Genesis uh, understood things and as people in the ancient Near East understood things that um, uh, temples were places that were the usually on mountains or themselves representative of mountains and I think that's the picture we get of Eden I think Eden is probably on this giant uh, I'm sorry the garden is probably on this giant mountain we could refer to as Eden and I'll try to talk about some of the geographical features and why we can see that in the biblical text and um, And I'm going to try to say why that's important for our study of the book of Leviticus. And because we should hear things multiple times, I'll just tell you now that that's important because of what happens to Adam and Eve there. They get exiled from the garden. They're pushed off the mountain, so to speak. And I think it's Psalm 24, you have the psalmist asking this question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Well, that question really only makes sense in its broader biblical context in light of what happens in Genesis if the Garden of Eden is indeed on a mountain and Adam and Eve get exiled because of sin. And so when we see that, that's going to really set us up to see again in, in more depth and the significance of what's happening in the book of Leviticus. That God is allowing humanity through substitutionary sacrifice to once again ascend the mountain of the Lord and return into fellowship with him. Does this make sense? Okay. So that's what we'll focus on next week. Um, we have three minutes. It's 1142. Does anyone have any questions? Jason. We say that um, Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. Yeah. And Beale here says he describes uh, the throne room as God's heavenly throne room. hmm I think because I think both of those, uh, it's not wrong. I mean, it's just that those ideas, I think, are ultimately interchangeable. And that's part of what I hope I've been trying to say today by showing that there's this sort of political dimension to Yahweh's temple. It's the place from which he rules Um, because his temple isn't merely a temple. It's also a palace and palaces are are buildings of political authority and institution and so on. Political significance. Does that make, does that, does that answer your question? And I'm just thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think it's, uh, um, yeah, I just think those are two, two ways ultimately that the biblical authors uh, talk about the same reality. Yep. Anyone else? Any other questions? All right. All right. Um, Okay, cool. Well, very good. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. We'll see you next week.